Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Roundtable, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers and investors in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion that we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Now, here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. Welcome back to Top Traders Roundtable, a podcast series on managed futures. My name is Niels Kostrup Larsen, and I'm delighted to welcome you to today's conversation with industry leaders in managed futures, which is brought to you by the CME Group. I'm joined by Marty Bergen, the owner and president of Don Capital Management, Grant Jaffarian, portfolio manager of the Advanced Trend Program at Crable Capital Management, as well as Mike Boss, who is a director within the Capital Introductions team at Societe Generale here in the US. First of all, welcome and thank you for taking time out to join me for our conversation about managed futures. Before we jump into the specific topics, Share with me a short version of your own investment journey and how you got to where you are today. And Marty, Don has one of the longest journeys within Manus Future, so why don't we start with you? Tell us about your own and Don's history when it comes to the CDA industry. Thanks, Niels. Don started in 1974, and I'm sad to say I wasn't along at the beginning, but Bill was originally working in the government contracting business in D.C., and thought he was a better way of making a living, so he started investigating trend following, originally applying it to equities. He figured out the population was too large, so he moved on to futures, which there was only about 12 at the time. Since then, it's been a success. He is not part of the Turtles, which most people mistakenly believe he is, but he was doing the same thing the Turtles were doing, just neither party knew of one or another. On my involvement, I'm a CPA. I was originally working for a accounting firm that did business with Bill and audited all his funds. And Bill and I worked together for eight, ten years. And in 97, he offered me a job, and it took me about two seconds to say yes, and I've been it done ever since. Started out at the, at the bottom and kind of worked my way through the process. And then seven years ago, we entered into a transitional agreement where I would take over the firm from him. It was supposed to be a 10-year plan. Uh, five years into it, he accelerated it and told me he thought things were going pretty well. And I said, well, how am I going to know if you're not happy, Bill? And since Bill is our largest client, he said I would know if he wasn't happy. And he's still our largest client. So, And we still break bread occasionally. He's still in the Palm Beach area, so he stays pretty close to the firm. But he's not active on a day-to-day -day basis. Sure, sure. And how about you, Grant? I know that you have played different roles in the managed futures industry over the years, and of course, Crable is another well-known CTA. Share with us some of yours and, and Crable's background story, please. Of course. Crable has been around, really. Toby started the firm almost three decades ago. 
We've been running institutional assets, or at least high net worth assets, really for over two decades. We're known as pioneers in the short-term trading space, which is in many ways markedly different than the trend-following space. We tend to have very low correlation to the average trend follower, purposefully. Right now, today, we, we focus on strategies in our flagship, which we call the multi-product, that target about a 24-hour hold time duration, which is quite fast relative to the, I would say, the larger sample of the managed futures space. What's more, we've expanded our offerings now. I'm the portfolio manager for a product we call Advanced Trend, which is directly accessing trend-following returns. So whereas our flagship is uncorrelated in short term, we do now have a trend follower that really leverages all of our experience in both what we learned and momentum on the short end of the scale and all of our thought processes around really long-term trend following that we've deployed inside the multi-product for decades now, coalescing into the advanced trend product. I came to be part of a Cra of, of Crable really after spending uh, nearly a decade at a fund of funds, efficient capital. I was the chief investment officer. While at Efficient, we ran uh, somewhere in the vicinity of two, two and a half billion dollars in, in assets that we allocated directly to managed futures traders. We were a little bit different in that we focused, certainly during my tenure there, not only on some of the best known asset managers in the managed futures space, but we typically had a number of allocations to early stage managers as well. So it was really a, a wonderful opportunity to watch the development of now some really household names like Winton and other big asset managers grow really from a very small initial size when we first started allocating them. It was fascinating. I left Efficient in 2012, initially desiring to work with startup managers. I, I saw a real struggle that they had in establishing themselves. Certainly, it's become a lot more challenging as the biggest managers have grown. I thought there was a need and, and potentially I could help them develop their businesses. I started a small group called AlphaTerra, which was acquired by Crable Capital Management in March of 2014. We sort of dissolved AlphaTerra, and now we just use the brand identifier called AlphaTerra for Crable offerings. They're fully Crable vehicles, but we use the AlphaTerra designation for products that are not short-term systematic strategies, of course, foremost of which is our advanced trend product. Great. And Mike, as someone who interacts with many players in the managed futures industry each day, I would love to learn more about your background and how you engage with them on a daily basis. Sure. Well, I have to say, when I graduated from college and I got a job as a runner for $125 a week in 1984, I called my mom. I was so excited. She cried. Um, like, uh, how, could, <laughs> how could that degree lend you to that? But the very first thing... When I asked one of my mentors to do, he sent me up and, and got graph paper. And this is what we did back in the day. We charted. And so I learned charting and we called it technical analysis at the time. And that was kind of my indoctrination to momentum. I joined, uh, after working for a couple Wall Street banks, I joined SockGen's legacy organizations in 2002. And we have a long, long history in our legacy companies of working in the CTA industry and pretty much starting at the very beginning and growing, growing with them. In regards to day-to-day, -day, I love it because there's just a lot of incoming from our client base because uh, most of the CTA or at least large CTA managers are our clients and a lot of them really need our guidance, especially from a regional perspective. In particular, 
I would say I've been involved with our European and Asian clients, helping them navigate the North, North American investor um, landscape, which can be very, very confusing to a non, non-American. Sure. Excellent. Thanks. Now, today we'll cover a number of different topics that I think many investors and traders have to deal with uh, in their day-to-day work. But since we have two legendary CTA firms sitting around this table, I want to kick off with a question relating to trend following or the part of, of the industry that relates to trend following. And the question is about trend following as a strategy, which is clearly been the backbone of the managed futures industry for many decades. But there seem to be a tendency, at least in recent years, where classical trend followers are reshaping themselves to become more multi-strategy type firms. And Grant, how do you view this evolution? Why do you think this apparent change is taking place? Trend followers tend to have, as we know, a reasonably high correlation to each other. That doesn't necessarily mean that their returns look identical. There tends to be dispersion in terms of absolute returns. But when investors look at the trend-following landscape, I think it's become difficult, particularly as institutions have used managed futures more readily and trend-following more aggressively, it's difficult to differentiate one trend-far from another, especially when contextualized with the growing number of flat-fee and low-cost trend-following options, which puts tremendous pressure on a full-fee, historically full-fee sort of trend-follower at, say, 1 in 20 or 2 in 20 to justify the fee load, particularly when in any given year the correlations are very high, dispersion can be either positive or negative. How do you do that? Well, one way to do that is to theoretically offer your investors something more than simple trend-following in a sense. So if you do not believe you can offer a compelling reason as to why your core trend-following offering is worth fees relative to flat-fee competitors, offer more. And so we're seeing sort of an abundance of growing strategies. Of course, that, that is a positive in the sense that theoretically it increases, hopefully, the sharp of a manager's core vehicle. But it's also a negative in the sense that for many institutions, it becomes very difficult to understand exactly what they're paying for and whether it's worth it. Marty, I know the trend following is very much at the heart of what Don Capital is doing, but do you see any dangers that investors should be aware of from this shift in focus that some trend followers have been undergoing? Or are they just adapting their strategies to cope with a less friendly environment that we've seen for trend following since the financial crisis? Well, I I agree with a lot of what Grant said, because what you've seen over the years is there's a large number of trend followers who haven't adapted or done the research required to to not differentiate themselves, but to take advantage of the technology and the data and things that are available today to do trend following or, or develop risk management tools and portfolio design to make their systems better and still be trend follower. So trend following isn't complicated. It's time and noise, and anybody can design a trend following system. The problem is you have a lot of trend followers who have been around a long time and haven't adapted their program. So you have, in my mind, you have kind of a mid- middling tier of trend followers. The p- performance has been 
poor. I mean, that's the bottom line. So if you're in that boat and you haven't done well, there's two things you can do. One is you can, because trend following has definitely got value. I mean, it's the one program that gives you the insurance during bad markets. So credit crisis markets, any kind of stress that gets introduced into the system when all other financial strategies become correlated, trend following tends to make money and it tends to make a lot of money. So people want to have an allocation of trend following. So how do you get that allocation? Well, if you go into just your average, ordinary, simple trend following program, you want to get low cost. And there's a lot of people out there providing very low cost trend following. What we're trying to do, I mean, in one respect, we're low cost because we never charge management fee. But on the other side, we do charge a 25% incentive fee. So I, you know, I tell people, look at the net returns. If we can provide returns that are better than the average and we can get 25% incentive fee, so be it. Uh, I've never had a complaint from a client that paid me an incentive fee. Sure. The fact that we don't charge money when they're losing money, and as a trend follower, there's going to be periods where you lose money. But we continue to do research. We continue to do things to try to make our system better over the three to five-year periods. And I think we've been fairly successful. Sure, sure. Mike, I want to bring you in on this topic since you see a lot of the flows relating to these uh, strategies. What have you seen when it comes to investor appetite within the managed future yeah. space? And perhaps specifically, what kind of strategies do investors go for at the moment when they decide to invest in this space? Well, as I think everyone here is aware, you know, hedge funds, uh, and not just CTAs, but hedge funds in general, are having a difficult time justifying their fee structures because of basically performance-related issues. So it's not just CTAs. I would say definitely the good news. The good news is some very, some you know, pension funds have done deep, deep dives into um, the strategies and convinced their boards that they can bring in returns when others are not and when they've kind of Fitted, fitted CTAs into you know 20 years of, of their own investment portfolios. They they see a smoothing of the returns. That they see you know less volatility, higher sharps. So uh, there are flows coming in, in particular from from North American entities, and kind of the, that's the good news. The bad news is the flagship, or maybe not the bad news, but the flagship allocations are to the lower fee, lower cost trend. There is some good news around that in that we see investors kind of building, you know, doing kind of a, a flagship allocation to low fee trend and then building allocations of non-correlating managers around them. And then kind of back to the bad news again is those allocations we see are really going to the very, very large gain, uh, names we've always known that that's been, you know, the, the larger ones get most of the lion's share, and we're continuing to see that. So kind of good news, bad news, I would say, with North America kind of leading the, the pack for allocations now globally. Sure, but if you look at some of the other parts of the world and the other regions that, that you interact with, 
Is the appetite very different from North America there, or is it just sort of different ways of implementing? Well, I, I think Marty can definitely comment on this because I know Don was earlier in in the USITS, you know, uh, with the USITS offering. Yeah, so anywhere from kind of mid-continent Europe to uh, to so- southern Europe, I wouldn't say all of a sudden. I think we had a, kind of an early start an interest in USITS with it kind of getting quiet, and now it's uh, if you want an allocation from that area you do need a USITS uh, vehicle. They're, as Marty's commented, they're, they've had a nice organic growth of theirs. And then I would add in, um, in, in Northern Europe, I, I think institutional investors have embraced these strategies. They do tend to go to higher fee, larger managers in Europe, fairly quiet in Asia uh, with probably just a notable, we've seen quite a bit of growth of some of the risk premium products in, in Asian markets. Just to add on to that, because I, you're absolutely correct. I mean, the money goes to the bigger managers and, you know, the bigger get richer. But I think what we're starting to see, because we're in the next tier down, we're a smaller manager. We're starting to see people who have allocations and they kind of build their main allocation to a big manager and then they reach out and try to build around that allocation. And we're starting to see those flows now. And I think you'll see more of that as we move forward is the, um, they start looking for the specialized manager or the manager that's getting a little bit better returns to enhance their portfolios. Once they get comfortable with the big guy, so you allocate the Winton or you know somebody in that framework, you get comfortable with managed futures, you understand how the program works, how it evolves during the market environments. Once that comfort comes about, then people start allocating to more in different things. And I think, um, Grant, you have to be seeing it from the short-term space. I mean, Toby's got to be accumulating assets because it seems to me that's the next natural uh, diversifier is going from the trend following to the short-term space and knowing that, you know, this is one manager that's actually done it for a period of time and made money over time. There's a lot of short-term space where they do well for three or four years and then it just goes off the cliff for whatever reason. And Crable's shown that they can do it and stand the test of time. So I have to think that's a huge advantage. I mean, is there anybody that's been doing it longer? <laughs> not not certainly at the institutional quality level, I think, that, that we have at Crable. I think that that's reasonable to say. Um, the, and you're right, there have been flows. We certainly talk to a number of investors these days that start the conversation by indicating they're not interested in trend following. They're talking to us because we offer no correlation to trend. One of the difficulties you run into with short-term trading is the reality is you have no choice organizationally but to be essentially a technology research shop first. And for instance, at Crable, you know, we're, we're over 90 people now, and we, we essentially have less than five in business development and client relations because everyone else is deployed in technology research, et cetera. Because when you're trading short term, you have to think about pursuing technological advantages that really are not so much competing against institutional asset managers, but the high frequency trading community, alpha degradation shows up a lot more readily. And all of those things basically mean capacity is a little bit more limited, of course. So, for instance, we're very strict on our capacity. All of us at Crable have a, a tremendous amount of our net worth invested in our own vehicles. The last thing we want to see is alpha decay and uh, sharp decline. 
because we've allowed institutional investors in uh, beyond the appetite that we can handle from a capacity consideration. And these are issues that we look at really every day on an intrasecond level. So it's wonderful to see inflows. We welcome it, but we're also not an unlimited supply of these things. We have to be very cautious on the capacity side. If I could uh, pipe in, you know, from a clear executor perspective, where I'm just curious, and this is open to both of you, I think I've seen an evolution of from well, we've all seen uh, evolution from voice to you know DMA electronic execution to now I think kind of the the third third level of some pretty high tech algo execution. I think back when in the day when returns were headier, there wasn't as much attention paid to slippage. And just curious to kind of open to both of you, have you done a lot of you know, research? Have you impl- implemented new execution algos? Have you, are you monitoring your slippage more than ever before? And kind of you know, open to both. Okay, well, I'll start. The answer is an emphatic yes to a degree that's that's sort of hard to to really fathom until you sit amongst our team for a great deal of time. Um, the investment that we've made on the execution side uh, has been extremely expensive, time intensive. It's been a very, very steep learning curve. And as mentioned earlier, the reality is we find ourselves competing really against Jump and and Virtu and Tower more often than we do uh, our former managers. And I think if you think about why that is, I think I'd, I'd suggest two different paradigms of viewing the world of execution from an institutional asset management perspective for the managed futures community. The first is, of course, managed futures has developed over really four decades, turtle trading, etc., around the idea that, you know, we're going to take trades, we're going to hold them for a duration of time, they're going to produce several points of return. When we actually get into those those trades or out of those trades, we may give up a tick here, a tick there. But really, in the context of the number of points we look to capture on a trading opportunity, it's negligible. Don't don't worry about it. And, And there's that paradigm, and that paradigm makes sense. I mean, you're essentially looking at this big numerator of the profit per trade and this very small numerator of the cost structure inherent in in sort of capturing it in terms of execution. And that paradigm makes a lot of sense. And in fact, that paradigm is very prevalent even now. I, I run across a number of investors when we talk about our trend following product who say, yeah, we don't really, all the, all the legacy trend followers we talk to, they're pretty skeptical that execution matters for trend following because of that ratio. A huge numerator in terms of profit per trade, a very small denominator in terms of cost. However, there's another way to look at that, which is the mathematical sort of impact of cost on an investor is essentially their NAV, their rate of return for an investment in a product. So there's another the other way would essentially be saying, well, how many round turns per million dollars of invested capital will I be making to run my trend floor, as an example? And, and a common number uh, might be, say, 1,000 round turns per million, which is to say every dollar of cost equates to 10 basis points of, of your NAV a year as a trend floor. It might not seem like a lot. A dollar that's, you know, in the E-mini S&P, we're talking about a tick width that's $12.5. You're talking about less than one-tenth of a tick, theoretically. 
Uh, exchange costs, you know, run anywhere from two to four dollars per contract. You know, so twenty to forty basis points there. But the reality is, it's ten to fifty basis points, maybe two to four percent, if you're paying a tick of slippage entry or exit, even for a trend far doing a thousand round turns a year. Well, that's a real number. So if you shift your paradigm from instead considering the size of the opportunity relative to the cost to saying, but the cost exists, and what exactly is that input impact, you start to, I suppose, sort of wake up to the fact that there goes 4 to 5% of your NAV a year if theoretically execution doesn't matter, and we're talking about a trend follower. So you know that, that cultural shift happened for us about five years ago where we said, you know what, alpha is important. We've always been an alpha shop, but my goodness, do we pay a lot in execution? And we always thought it was relatively small and inconsequential, but guess what? It immediately hits the bottom line. It's essentially a fixed cost, and you can fix it. The problem with fixing it is you have to learn, and you have to learn in a hurry, and you have to compete against folks who are spending literally hundreds of millions of dollars a year to maintain their co-locations, advance their algos, and execute in, say, double-digit micros. We're there now, but my goodness, what a road. So one thing people have to understand is when we talk about the cost of trading, it's not the commission cost that we're worried about. It's the cost of slippage in making that trade. So the larger you get, the more difficult it is to move your book. Um, I assume, Grant, you are still using actual traders to do the trade, or is most of it automated at this point? Uh, 100% automated, co-located. Okay. So our approach is exactly the opposite, and we have that ability because we're a trend follower, and Grant's exactly right. The cost of slippage to us is a relative basis of profitability is very small. Now, it doesn't mean it isn't important, because it is, and we monitor it constantly, because all our research has to make an assumption about slippage. And so we're always trying to reduce that slippage and become better at it. What we, our approach is we have actual traders that do the trading for us. And then I provide them with a suite of tools. Part of those tools are the ability to alg trade algos. Part of it is the platforms and the algos that are on platforms. And then part of it is leaving it to their understanding of the markets or what they think they can do with a market and leave it in their hands. And there, there are times when uh, they'll hold a trade back, you know, for several hours with the idea that the market's coming to them and execute the trade when they think it'll be the most profitable. Now, in tracking slippage, I've actually had positive slippage for several years. Now, this year, not so much. So there's going to be times when they're going to pay more than the average, and there's going to be times when they're going to do better than the average. I just think with as much of the industry that's going to the automated route, because it's not just you know short-term traders like Grant. People in my the long-term trend-following space is also going to automated trading. I mean, they don't want to have the cost of a trading desk. It's much easier to have the technology, have a co-located server, use the algos that are off the shelf, and trade the position. I would assume, Grant, you guys don't use algos off the shelf. You're probably doing things that are designed in-house. Because, yep. I mean, the bottom line is, if you're using algo off the shelf, it, it's there's other algos designed to take advantage of that algo. That's just 
That's just the way it is. So you get what you pay for. I just wanted to go back to uh, investor demand a little bit, but also uh, continue a little bit on the the cost issue. Clearly, the low fee products that we talked about earlier on, um, you know, where they claim that they can capture uh, the return of certain strategies, have received a lot of attention from investors in recent years. So I want to hear your sort of opinion about these uh, products, Grant. Why don't we start with you? At what do you make of this development in in general? I I think it's fantastic. It's it's absolutely fantastic. I mean, the reality here is we're all in the business of rewarding our investors. At the end of the day, that's our priority. And for the most part, a growing percentage of our investors are the pensions and endowment communities of the world. And it's exciting to actually theoretically add value to the bottom line for folks that really need it. The idea of a competitive landscape where investors pay for what what you're actually doing is really exciting for us. In terms of low-cost trend following specifically, the world has sort of evolved so far to be a world of full-fee trend following that claims to add a lot of advantages that justify higher rates of, of fees and low-cost trend followers. And very often, the very same manager may offer one of both. That... You know, and there are some wonderful shops out there. In no way do I intend to disparage them. However, I, I do want to suggest that that's an interesting potential conflict of interest in the sense that the last thing you can afford to have happen if you're offering two products and justifying full fees of one by being superior to one that is lower fees is have the one that's lower outperform that really jeopardizes your core flagship vehicle. So theoretically, intuitively, and I don't work for these organizations, I don't know exactly how they think about this issue, but it seems to me that it would be wise to somehow handcuff what you're doing on the low fee side. Investors expect low fee to be more vanilla anyway. And hopefully in that handcuffing, either in the number of markets you trade, perhaps in how you execute, perhaps in the number of strategies you deploy, etc., you can guarantee that you won't have a sustained period in, in, of time where your low-cost alternative outperforms your flagship. It's a big risk. Mm. Now, what's happened more recently, and, and you know, there are a number of shops, I, you know, we're certainly, I guess, one of them, who have not historically offered their flagship as a long-term trend far. They've been uncorrelated. So in our particular instance, we have a trend far that's been developed over decades of time that's sort of, again, coalescing a lot of our research over all sorts of different time frames. And we've manifested it into sort of the heart of our thinking in optimal, everything we can think of that adds value in trend following way in what we call advanced trend. And when we came to market with that particular product in, um, in 2014, we found ourselves debating internally, what do we do here? Because on the one hand, it's our peer group, and we look to outperform every full-fee trend far out there, and we love the idea of, of having that competitive landscape to compare ourselves on a daily basis. On the other, uh, there's a meaningful appetite for low-cost fee, and frankly, there should be, because much of what trend-following returns are are relatively replicable. So we ended up trying to cut both ways and say, you know what, we're going to pursue everything we can think of in terms of high-quality trend-following, but we're just going to offer it at a low-cost fee level, um, very much with the intention of creating that, fear, that, that fee pressure. Um, and we're somewhat unapologetic about it. Uh, 
you know, we'll see what happens from here, but that's sort of the landscape. Historically, it's been full fees, doing everything, low fees, theoretically doing more vanilla. Now there are a number of entrants were among them that are saying, wait a second, we think that you should pay low fees for, for what used to be full fee. We'll see what, where it goes. So can I just to clarify, so, so what do you charge for your trend following? And also, what do you think the real cost of running a trend following program is? We charge one and zero. That's our 1% management fee, no incentive, or uh, 0% management, 10% incentive at, at our investor's choice, or really any combination thereof. We estimate that just in terms of our execution infrastructure, we're talking about having to support it with several $10 million, multiple $10 million worth of investment in execution alone. That doesn't manage, that doesn't really speak to all the other costs around data, you know, client relations, office space, et cetera. So, you know, really to break even with our trend following product, we'd have to run in the vicinity of $4 billion at our fee structure to break even at the fee, the fee level we're charging for this product. Uh, the reality for us, of course, is we're, we're a short-term manager by, by legacy. All of that infrastructure we maintain because we have to for our short-term program and it all is leveraged. So, we're in, we're in something of an advantageous position, I suppose, in the sense that we do not need to plow all of our trend following management fees right back into execution. Much of that is supported. It can enhance instead ongoing research and development. But really, $4 billion is about the break-even, if that's all we were, yeah. uh, was a trend following. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Roundtable. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes or SoundCloud and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review on iTunes. It only takes a minute, and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you on the next episode of Top Traders Roundtable.